today's show is brought to you by Public. You'll be hearing more about them later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. So happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Kevin Muir of the Macro Tourist Newsletter. Kevin is a veteran of the bond markets, and he, I believe this is his third time on the show. Kevin, welcome. Happy New Year. Uh, thanks for having me, Jack. It's always a pleasure. I, I must say, you know, I've been watching your show, and it just keeps getting better and better. I watched the other day you had Hari Krishnan. That was one of the best interviews I've seen forever. You're, the guests you get are terrific. It's just a real pleasure and an honor to be on your show. Well, I mean, obviously, my guests are good. I mean, if you're here, you know. <laughs> you're too kind. So we've got, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, why do you think the economy is doing so well? What, 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 is, your, what is your framework for, for 2024? Well, I've had the same theme for a while now, and I think it's, it's kind of amazing that people are still wondering and puzzling about this. And to me, it's pretty obvious that it's fiscal. The world changed in 2020. Every single time up until that point, we had tried to fix all of our kind of slumps with lower interest rates. You know, if you look at 1982, interest rates were cut from whatever it was, 15 down to seven. Then the next time they raised them up to 10. And then the next time they raised them, lowered them down to four. And it was this series of kind of lower highs and lower lows. And what they were doing was they were using monetary stimulus to fix the economy. But it was taking more and more kind of or lower and lower rates to actually have the same effect. Comes 2008, we get to zero and all of a sudden monetary stimulus doesn't work like we think it does. We do all this extraordinary kind of monetary stimulus, whether it's QE, Operation Twist, a whole host of things. They don't work as well as everyone expects. And kind of we learn the lesson over the next decade of this kind of moribund growth and just kind of muddling along. COVID comes and all of a sudden we re kind of discover fiscal stimulus. And not only do we rediscover it, we go absolutely bonkers with it and do so much of it. And that fiscal stimulus is way more powerful than people expect. I think that they've been underestimating it. And I think it has more of a longer term lasting effect than everyone thinks. And so when I look at our economy and everyone's wondering why are we still doing so well, even though interest rates are higher, Yes, private sector credit creation is is down, but the government continues to spend and put money directly into the economy through their deficits. Yes, and some you know viewers may say, "Oh, but the economy is weakening because you know PMIs are down, um, growth is down, spending is the rate of growth is is down." And I would say, yeah, number one, it's not that the absolute levels are declining; it is that they were the, they are growing more slowly. They were growing at eight percent, and now they're only growing at five percent. But when inflation slows from 9% to 3%, that, you know, real real growth and in, in real terms, 2023 was a pretty good year. And also it's about expectations. Like now the market thinks that the Fed is going to cut, I think, five or six times by the end of the year. If the Fed only cuts two times, that's actually pretty hawkish relative to what the market expects, even though the Fed has signaled, I think, around three. So it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a relative game markets are, right? For sure. And and not only that, it's human beings are just like have a way of being kind of disappointed continually. If you had thought back to 2020 when we were in lockdown and the world seemed to be ending, and I said to you, we were going to have kind of three years from now, we were going to have a rip-roaring stock market. We were going to have the unemployment down at 3% or whatever it is and the growth at this X level you would have said, oh, that's terrific. Like, that's great. But yet here we are and everyone's just mad about whatever it is, you know, whether it's the, the price of like, yes, and I understand inflation is higher, but on the whole, we're a lot better off than we ever would have imagined back, you know, in March of 2020. 
Yes, and you're saying the reason is is fiscal, 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 the U.S. government actually printing money, the U.S. government running a deficit, which is the surplus of the private sector in 2008 and in the aftermath to that. Central banks were doing a lot of monetary stimulus, quantitative easing, which is a form of money printing. But if it's only monetary stimulus and the government is not running a large deficit, there's only so much that that can do. It has a pretty limited effect on the overall economy, even though on the financial system, it's, it's very large. This time, the government is running a very fiscal deficit. And you know, you sounds like you think this is here to stay. What's it like, Kevin, as someone who, you know, you've been in the bond markets for a very long time, obviously, not just pay attention to the short term interest rates, you know, st- the stir markets, but you know, have, have traded them for a long time. What's it like sort of having to focus away from the you know, is the Fed going to do 25? Is the Fed going to do 50? If, if, if fiscal really is what's driving this economy and not monetary, if we are living in a time of fiscal dominance, you know, how, how do you sort of have to, do you have to, have to rewire your brain? Because I feel like if we are, I may have to rewire my brain because, you know, I know how to read the, the Fed stuff, the FOMC, the minutes, the, every, everything, but like, I don't, I don't, you know, really have the tools. I think I need to build out the tools to analyze fiscal. So first of all, Jack, I've actually cut my teeth as an equity derivatives trader. So the fact that I'm posing as a bond trader is actually it makes me feel good. So thank you for that kind of compliment. In terms of the 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 markets and in terms of rates, we still need to deal with how the Fed is moving it around. And I guess what I'm saying more so is that that Fed moving rates around isn't affecting the economy like we think it is. So yes, the Fed's still doing all these things. It's still moving them. We're all playing these games, but it's not doing what we think to the economy. And if I if I could take the opportunity to plug your show again, you had an absolute fabulous interview with Warren Mosler. And he talked about the fact that actually interest rates rising can be stimulative. And when I first heard that, he's been talking about that for a while. I was like, no, nah, that's insane. Like that's that just doesn't make any sense. He's out to lunch. Like, but the more I thought about it and the more I kind of went about trying to disprove it, I realized that he is correct. Like the, the private sector money creation is affected by the rising of interest rates. But if that is limited, meaning that if we're not really counting on that as the actual engine of growth, and then we think about the other part of the economy, which is the actual government spending money into existence, when they raise rates, okay, and don't change their spending. And that's the key part, right? When they raise rates, like when the Fed changes rate, rates, rates, people have changed their spending. They might not buy a house. They might not buy a car. They change it. But the government doesn't change. Like, they, or, you know, maybe they should, but they don't. And so when the Fed raises rates, we actually have a situation where the government spends just as much in terms of whatever they've decided to spend. And then on top of that, they're actually going out and having a deficit to fund. And when they fund that, everyone kind of thinks, oh, deficits are bad. But we have to remember that the government's deficit is the private sector's credit. And so when we're sitting here looking at the fact that we're having record profits in the stock market, we really shouldn't be that surprised because the the record profits of the stock market is a direct reflection of the record deficits of the government. And so when you back to your question about like, how does this kind of change of fiscal dominance affect my forecasting of interest rates, we just have to kind of keep it in mind that what we're trying to do is forecast what the Fed will do. And that will definitely affect the, the rates that they choose, but it might not affect the economy like we thought. And that's kind of my main point is that, yes, 
all of these things, the fiscal dominance is affecting the, the, the Fed's ability or the Fed's willingness to raise rates. Like we just had the like one of the, the steepest tightening periods that we've had since 1982. And like, just stop back and think about when they first hiked. I remember Goldman Sachs and other sell-side firms saying, we're never going to get over two. We're never going to get over two. Yet here we are at five. And the reason that we've gotten over to up to five and the economy hasn't collapsed and is in fact continuing to be stronger than everyone expects is because of fiscal. So I don't think that just because fiscal is there and it's mute, what the Fed does means that we can't, that we should ignore what the Fed does. It just means that we need to keep that in mind while we're thinking about the reaction function of the economy from the Fed's moves. Right. Do you, do you think that the, the reason that interest rates are, you know, can be can be stimulative is because we have more government debt this time around. In other words, so I think the classical conception is when interest rates rise, that curbs demand for credit because, you know, people want to take out a 3% mortgage, not a 6% mortgage. So if everyone in the world is a private sector borrower, that is going to dominate things. But the government is also there. And if the government runs a deficit, deficit, they're just paying out more more interest as they refinance their debt. And I, you know, there's not a, I don't think the U.S. government basically changes its discretionary budget based on, oh man, we're rising rates are really, really hurting us. So I think you have these two, two frame of mind and we, Warren is all the way over here and on the, it's all about the, the government. And I think the classical conception is here. I don't know if, you know, if we want to go like this far, but clearly, I mean, they, I would say they are less contractionary than, than mainstream economics had thought. Yeah. I, I actually think I'm, I'm a little more towards Warren's side. I actually think it's stimulative. And the reason it's stimulative, as you pointed that out, is the fact that the the deficits or the debt, I'm sorry, is so high. So if we had a situation where the debt was 20% of GDP and the Fed raised rates, then the deficit that is created from the raising of rates is a lot smaller than if you have a situation where it's 100% of GDP. So in essence, the fact that the debt is so large is actually creating an environment where the rate hikes are even more stimulative to the private sector in terms of that, just that one aspect. And I, listen... I agree. Sometimes the MMT folks, they forget about the private side credit creation too much. They just ignore it. They go, no, no, the only thing that matters is the government side. And I I don't agree with that because I do believe that the private side credit creation does matter and it can affect it and it is important at times. The thing is, in this environment where the government is the majority of the spending and the majority of the stimulus and where they do have these huge debts, it is more important and we should be focusing more on that side. I think one of the things you and I have in common is that we both, I would say, you know, have respect for modern monetary theory and say, okay, there are things in monetary theory that we can learn from and that can inform our frameworks, but we you know, definitely do not wholeheartedly embrace, you know, all their doctrines, especially some of their more radical ones. I would say when we spoke a year ago, some people who were moderate, you know, subscribed to monetary theory were saying everything is everything inflationary is transitory. And they, I would say, had a, probably a little bit of egg on their face because it's like, well, we printed all this money and inflation went up. Sure, supply side uh, had something to do with it, the, the, the bottlenecks that everyone talks about. But you don't think, you know, all this money printing did, did something. We need to we need to raise rates. Maybe would you say that they're looking a little, you know, modern monetary theory looking a little better given the, you know, pretty remarkable disinflation that we've had this year, number one, and that it's been on the supply side, that it hasn't been because the economy slowed down. Disinflation has occurred because those bottlenecks, they, they were finally fixed. Yeah, so I agree with you, Jack, when, I, when you see your, your kind of criticism of MMT is the fact that they always said that the government has uh, doesn't have a financial uh, constraint. They have a real resource constraint. 
they can spend up until the point that they create inflation. And at that point, then they have to cut back on the spending. Well, I, I understand that the pandemic did have supply constraints, but there's just no doubt in my mind that when you're having nine, 10% inflation, you've spent too much. And I just look at the amount that the government spent and I say, you know, your theory was correct. You overshot it. And now you're not being honest about it. You're not being honest about the fact that you created this because of the government overshooting the, the kind of the amount of spending. And listen, it gets a lot more complicated than that because you could argue about where the money should go in terms of, yes, it, there was lots of people who needed it. And then there was some that just got money and there was no need for them to get money. And it's complicated. And the other problem with MMT is a lot of people think that it has to do with the prescriptive part about it, meaning that, oh, the government can spend all this. So they should therefore go do all these green initiatives and stuff. And if you listen to like Warren Mosler and the people that are talking about the theory, they don't say anything of the nature. They just say, listen, the, the idea that deficits matter is less than people think. And the way that the plumbing works is much different. And I just go back to March of 2020 when everyone thought the world was ending, that there was no way that we would get the stock market or the economy through this. And MMT said, listen, we can spend our way through this. We can actually do this. And they were correct. And, and they did. And so I don't go and use MMT as something where I'm trying to decide what should be done because I don't care what should be done. People shouldn't care what I think should be done because it's not going to make you any money. Like you always, you have to trade the market that you have, not the market you want. And so I just think about what will be done and how will that work? And I think that MMT in terms of understanding the plumbing of it, in terms of what, what, what went on and how markets behave has gotten way more right than they've gotten wrong. That's such a good point that MMT is a framework for describing the mechanics and the, the plumbing rather than an ideology. You know, MMT can be used by, by you know, politicians on the, the right or the left wing or, or, or anywhere in between. Uh, I would say one potential exception, I'm, I'm curious if you agree, is that when, when folks argue that basically that the, tre the, they, the, the, US, the government uh, funding itself does not fund itself via treasury issuance. That's only like a, like a giveaway to the private sector, and it basically could just print money. I'm pretty sure in terms of the mechanics that like the U.S. government is legally not allowed to do that. Like they have to, you know, get money from from the bank deposits. So, but you are correct when you say the it's legally, and but that is a self imposed constraint, is what they would argue. Yes. Right, that there is nothing stopping them from just going out and, and if they wanted to, we could change the law and we could just spend it, the money into existence. We don't need to go borrow it. Like yes. that, that is just something we've chosen to do. And in fact, if you think about it, if we have a situation where we are spending and then we spend it and then we go, well, by law, we need to borrow it. So we go borrow it but then the federal reserve buys it right back and then it sits on the bank on the federal reserve's balance sheet for years and years and years which is kind of where we're at how is that really different than the government just spending it into existence like it, it's not and like and and the the exercise i always like to tell people that i kind of think is really kind of warps your mind or you start thinking whoa the, like this is money isn't what i think it is let's just take the bank of japan bank of japan has 250 percent of their debt to gdp outstanding as debt right like or sorry as jgbs of that half of it is owned by the actually bank of japan now what happens and like listen they, like they're never going to be able to sell let's just be honest and say you know 
they're not. They're going to hold it forever. What happens if tomorrow the one side of the government just says, let's just flatten that? Like, don't worry about the stuff outstanding. Let's just talk about the stuff that the 125% that the Bank of Japan owns and the 125% of GDP that the government has issued. Let's just flatten those two. You mean make it disappear? Yeah, they just zero. Like, listen, you could do it a variety of different ways. If you wanted to, you could make it like a perpetual bond with like 0.0001% interest rate. But if you just want to be intellectually honest, let's just flatten it. Okay. And then you're like, but, but you can't do that. And like, why not? Like, yeah, you can. Now, the question is, what happens when you do that? I think what one of the things that occurs is that people get nervous. They go, holy smokes, the government just flattened 125% of GDP. That means they can spend it again. And like, if they spent that and flattened it, they can do that again. At which point I go, yes, the government can always spend it. They can always create inflation. And ultimately, you know, uh, Jack, this is one of the things that I think is funny when people start telling me about the inevitability of deflation or disinflation and Uh the fact that they don't worry about long run inflation. I'm like, the inflation can always be created. And, And it's just, it's hilarious when you think back to the late, you know, 2010s. When you had a situation where people were telling me the three D's, they said, yep, demographics, debt, and disinflation from technology. And literally, I had really, really important like hedge fund managers tell me there is no way we're ever going to make inflation again. No way. And I'm always like that. It, like that doesn't make any sense. It's a political choice. And if we want, we can always create inflation. And in fact, one of my big arguments is, you know, you could sit there and you're, a lot of people are going to be kind of disgusted about the fact that I actually said anything positive about MMT. I get it. And like, you know, a lot of people dislike it. But if you think about where the economy is headed and what we're doing, and you mentioned earlier the fact that MMT is a, is a framework that you can use on the left and right. And I always argued that Trump was the most MMT president that we've ever had. And the reason that I said that was because he went and did tax cuts, not when the economy was doing badly. And when they asked him, why are you doing these tax cuts if the economy is doing badly, so well? And he says, well, there's no inflation. And he, like, he realized that he could keep spending. or Which is an ex- extremely astute yeah, sure. Yeah. And, 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 but my, my point is that we are headed towards the government spending more and more. We've opened the, like the, the genie's out of the bottle. It's, it's not, they're not going back. And one of my big arguments is that we're going to continue down this road. And therefore, all the surprises going forward over the next five, 10, 20 years will be higher inflation, not lower inflation. So, yes, I understand the arguments why you might argue that we're in kind of just a a cyclical downturn of inflation and that you might say, you know, the next blip or the next squiggle is going to be less inflation. But when I'm thinking about the big picture surprises that you're going to experience in the coming decades, I think that they're always going to be on the positive side of inflation. And ultimately, that's why I think bonds are actually a terrible long term investment. So, you know, you talking to your, your hedge fund buddies in 2019, 3Ds, you know, you can never be inflation because of debt demographics and, dis, and there will be deflation. You know, obviously, I think, you, you know, your call is aged better than, than their call, but they would probably look at Japan and say, okay, Kevin, but, you know, my outlook is that every, everything turns into Japan, a very, very popular call. What was it about Japan where, you know, quadrillions of yen were printed via quantitative easing? And yet they did not produce inflation. They produced deflation and growth. Why was Japan so special? And why don't you think the rest of the world? Because a lot of people say, you know, Japan is 40 years ahead of where Europe and the U.S. is going to be. 
So it was a political choice again. Like when you had Japan, when they started doing well, like they would actually, you know, go do something. They do some stimulus. The economy would start to pick up and they'd be like, okay, we got to pay down the debt again. It was a continual choice. Like we've already, we have to agree that quantitative easing actually doesn't make inflation. That's not what causes inflation, right? Like that's when you get a situation in where the country's in a balance sheet recession, you can lower rates, you can buy, you can stimulate, you can do whatever you want. The reality is that the private sector is not going to do it anymore. So you need to do the government. And in every single time we had a situation where the economy started doing well in Japan, they got nervous. There's a, a stringency or, or you know, re- restraint, but on the fiscal side, when you say the government, so the f- government stopped borrowing money. The this Bank of Japan kept printing all night, but yeah. Or they, they, they went and they raised taxes. Mm-hmm. Like they, they just didn't go for it. So yes, you're right. Like they can continue printing money or doing quantitative easing. That's not going to change anything. That, that affects, you know, financial asset prices. And you could argue that it has a slight effect on some, on some, parts of the economy, but I think it has very minimal effect. I don't think that that matters. I think that unemployment rate in Japan is super low right now, right? It's like, yeah, well, listen, Japan is now in a different situation and they're finally waking up and realizing that they've kind of been sitting in this, this morass for two decades and it's not helping them. And in the meantime, their stock market's gone straight down. They have some governance issues in terms of their, like the way that they run their companies. They have, a whole host of other reasons, I mean, other problems. But now for the first time, we have a situation where they are stimulating both on the reform side of like corporate governance. They are stimulating in terms of not raising rates while everyone else is. And they are also making sure the currency is low. So we have, it's just, it's actually, I think Japan is one of the greatest like long stories out there right now. Like you go to Japan and you go and try to like buy you a dinner and you'll just be like, holy smokes, did I get like, did I miss a zero here because it's so cheap? Like I was there this summer and I was just flabbergasted. I literally went out and I thought, oh my God, I've just spent like two grand on dinner for the for my family of five. And it ended up being 200 bucks, right? And, and, and if you go to like the US, you go to Miami right now or somewhere that's really hot, like it's going to be, a fortune to eat and you see inflation everywhere. So you have a situation where the currencies are cheap. You have the government doing the right thing and they're still stimulating from a financial, sorry, from a deficit point of view and also from a monetary point of view. And so I think that Japanese stocks are a long-term terrific buy. I think if you want to go do something, you can go buy small caps because I think they're just dirt cheap. Like in this world, it's tough to find stocks that are actually cheap. Japan small caps are one of the few. Yeah, I mean, I, I never do diligence, do invest in these or even do due diligence in them. But I see people on Twitter and I, I, I bookmark when I see it, people talk about, you know, a, a Jap- Japanese micro cap that's $60 million and they have you know, $80 million in cash in the bank and ah. they're trading it seven times. Like something that Warren Buffett would have bought in America in 1960. That's right. The cigar butts or whatever it is, the joke and stuff like that. It's just awesome. Like it's, there's so many cheap stocks. And, and, the, and the thing about it is that they've been cheap for a while. Like I remember Jim Grant. Got to love the guy. He's been talking about Japan small caps for the past decade. Well, it looks like they're finally doing the the changes that are required to actually realize some of that value. Today's show is brought to you by Public. Public Public.com has just launched its new high-yield cash account, offering an industry-leaving 5.1% APY. No fees, no subscription, no minimums or maximums, just 5.1% interest on your cash. 
You can transfer or withdraw cash as often as you like, and you get up to $5 million FDIC insurance. Grow your cash at an industry-leading 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account at Public. Go to public.com slash forward guidance to learn more. That's public.com slash forward guidance. This is a paid endorsement for public.com. 5.1% APY as of December 20, 2023 and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description. High yield cash accounts are available for U.S. members only. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Yes. Well, well, Kevin, you've made too many charts that are too good for us not to uh, <laughs> talk about them. Let's, you, I mean, you, you've done a, a deep dive on buy right ETFs, sort of sell, selling options. But I, I want to start off, you know, this is a macro Federal Reserve focused, central bank focused show. Let's, you've got some great charts on short-term interest rates and how much you think the, the Fed is going to cut. So you know, we can talk, put them up as, as we speak, but it's, it's fair to say, so take, take us back to October when everyone became an expert in term premia and the, the treasury issuance QRA. Isn't that hilarious? Like I, I tell you, Jack, I've been a huge bond bear for a long time just because I, I believed that inflation was coming. And I was like, I was probably early and I wrote a couple of pieces for Bloomberg and it was, I, I think it was the first year that we had the bond market down. And I wrote something saying that, you know, at the beginning of the second year, watch out, you might actually have two years in a row of the bond market being down. At this point, I think over the last 25 years, we had had only three total years of the bond market ever giving negative kind of like returns. And this would have been I was calling for two in a row. Well, the lectures that I got were just unbelievable. People telling me I'm going to learn my lesson. The bond market always knows better. And this is like when bonds were like, like the long end was two or something and, and tens were one and a half and people were yeah. saying, so this is, this is, there was a mild bear market in treasuries in 2021 yeah. and you, you, and, and treasuries had sold off hard in the beginning of the year and then rallied giving the bond bulls some, some right. you know, optimism. And then 2022 was, you know, one of the worst years in bond total return in history, especially, I mean, worse than, you know, in some regards, a lot of the years in the 1970s, because then starting yields were so high, but right. when you're getting paid 2%, you know, you're, you're, you're not being paid. And, the, and, the and even last year, if you think about it, the majority of the, of the year, people kept thinking there was going to be a recession and the call was to be long bonds. Like everyone was a bear in terms of the economy, not in terms of bonds. So it was funny that we finally, we had that September FOMC where it, for whatever reason, it was just this point where the bond market kind of realized the fed was more serious at that point, I believe that they were on one hike every other meeting. So that was what they were doing. They didn't say it out loud, but if you looked at it, that was kind of implied and that's how it worked out. And everyone was expecting them to pause and stop that to kind of guidance and they stuck with it. And it was kind of like Jay Powell's hire for longer from 2019, 2019 comment or 20, late 2018, sorry. Yeah, and it was very similar. And People, if you go look at that day of the FOMC, I, like I think the long bond went up like 85 or 100 basis points over the next month and a bit. And it just went no bid. It was, the, it was just a vicious, vicious bond bear market. Now, people will claim that it was about the QRA and it was about Janet Yellen and stuff like that. I, I want to take the other side of that. I don't think that that – if you go look at – their actual changes and how much they tweaked it and what wall street was expecting. Like if you go look at the actual strategists that are doing this, like the bond things, it was very minor. The, the differences, I think what occurred was everyone got all bared up and we had a situation where all of a sudden 
They realized they had been wrong about the economy. They'd been wrong about recession. And now they were going to find a situation where the, the bond market was gone no bid and they sure were going to get bearish. And all of a sudden, people that didn't know what term premium were were experts. People that didn't know about QRA were, you know, checking every auction and figuring out how it went. We were talking about tails and the pessimism like in the bond bear in the bond market was just so rampant. And we hit this point and I was like, I actually had covered my short and then there hit a point where I actually got long. And for me, like, that's just like, I don't know. It'd be like Hussman getting long S and P 500. It would just like, it was so out of character and I was getting lectured about this. And I was like, I don't like, yeah, I understand all the reasons why you're bearish, but the reality is that we have gone too far too fast. And, and this is just gotten brutal. And it was all about positioning. People would gotten so bearish and it sold it down. And then the fed pivoted and they pivoted. And then we had the QRA change, which I think was minor, but I think the fed pivoting meant a lot. And next thing we know, we've had one of the great, like a huge monster rally in bonds. Okay. But I think one of the things that people are missing in terms of all of this, in terms of the fed is that they're all kind of bitter. Like if you look at what they're at their, attitude they feel like they've been uh dismayed or, or or taken down the garden path by powell they were like listening to this thing about like he didn't want to be arthur burns like how many times did we have to hear that i'm not going to be arthur burns blah 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 and they all thought he was going to just drive the economy off a cliff to make sure we got inflation down to two percent and it doesn't make any sense like why like why are we going to go and put our economy into a recession just so we can ha- like make sure that inflation is truly and utterly back under 2%. Okay. It didn't make sense. And they were way too pessimistic about, or they expected too much hawkishness out of Powell. And when he didn't do that, they got very upset. But if you look at what they say and how they behave and what they signal, you'll realize that what they're doing isn't as illogical as everyone thinks it is. And one of the things that I like doing is if you pull up the chart of the one-year inflation swaps versus the 12-month T-bill rate, you'll see that even though we've priced in, like, as you say, there's five and a half or almost six per, six cuts priced in over the, the year, which is implicit in that decline in the one-year T-bill rate, it's declined from five and a quarter down to 482 or whatever it is. and but the thing is that what's occurred at the same time is the one-year inflation rate has gone from three to two. So the r- real rate that we're using is actually this is, is, is unchanged. So even though it feels like the Fed is going and lowering rates, in real terms, they're not. And this is the one thing that I think a lot of people miss. They all use backward-looking inflation numbers to give the real rate. And you just have to go look at John Williams. John Williams, the, the head of the New York Fed, he had a, a meeting where he talked about in very clear terms. Sorry, he had an interview. He talked about in very clear terms how they set policy and how they think about policy. They don't think about it in terms of the backward-looking inflation. They think about it in terms of the forward-looking inflation. So we have to think about what the rate is versus what the market expects inflation to be. So even though the Fed has implicitly tactically allowed for they 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 said three, five and a half have been priced in. 
I would say that the Fed is still just as hawkish in terms of when you think about it in real terms as they have been kind of six months ago. There's been no real change. What has changed is forward inflation has come down. Yes. And so what we're seeing here is on the white line, it's the one-year inflation swap. And yeah, blue is is the you know, risk-free rate, 12-month T-bills. So as inflation has fallen, 5.5% is is more restrictive with inflation at 3% than when it was at 8%. At 8%, it maybe 5.5 is not even you know t- tight tight enough. And I, I remember Austin Goolsby hearing, hearing him say that in September, and that was the first time a, a light switch flicked on, hmm, actually, maybe you're serious about that, but I, I don't think I took it seriously enough. I mean, I, I, I know for a fact I didn't. And it, just going back to the, the point about relative expectations, my memory of the September meeting was not that it was terribly hawkish. I think it was... That, that is my perception. I think it was just that the market had priced in all of these cuts, you know, draw if you draw a dotted line from the overnight rate to the 10 year, and then what's the, the, the market said, oh, wow, the Fed, they really don't even they're not even gonna think about cutting. And then so that that line had to be redrawn and uh, yields yields move significantly higher. And now, so okay, so and then we have the two year two two month incredible rally in stocks and bonds that uh, you know, everyone has has witnessed. What are your views right now going forward? Let's talk a little bit about the fact that the stock market or the bond market seems to continually price in cuts. And I think that's a really interesting point. And there's a couple of different aspects of that that's that's interesting. First of all, everyone says that the Federal Reserve is priced in or the market is priced in five and a half cuts for this year. And that's not quite correct because what the market is doing is the market is looking at the the kind of distribution of potential rates a year from now. And they're saying to themselves, okay, what is like the probability that it's going to be under two? And what is the probability it's going to be over six? And the reality is that if you look at throughout history, there's been a few times, and especially recently in 2002 and 2008, where you had really quick kind of cuts from the Federal Reserve. Like I think that the 2008 was 300 odd basis points in the first year, which, you know, is a lot of cuts. And I think the 2000 was even more, it was 400 basis points in the first year. So the market is sitting there and saying, well, what if that happens again? So I need to price in the possibility that we have that sort of cut. So it's kind of a probability weighted distribution of returns. So it's actually not kind of what the market expects. It's how the market expects the kind of is pricing to take into effect into account the different kind of possibilities out there. Okay. So I would say that the market probably went for in reality, the unchanged is probably much more likely than people think. And the down, the down, below two is priced in with everyone really worried about that. And and I want to go back to also the fact that if we've had a situation where since 1982, every single time the federal, the market has gotten into trouble, the economy has gotten into trouble, the Fed has cut and it's cut hard and it's just continually cut more and more. And that's with this reliance on monetary stimulus, right? And that's because that's how we dealt with things. And if you look at that, look at that chart, you'll see that every, you know, high was low, was lower and every low was, was lower. And it was just a, a series of lower and lower 
highs and lows. And so I think that what the market is doing now is they're still assuming that we're in a monetary driven world. And they're again, underappreciating the fiscal side of things. So uh, I think we're kind of in this perverse world where we're going to see the market continually expect lower rates and not get them. And the other thing, Jack, that I, you know, I haven't written about this yet, but it really perplexes me. And I've been thinking about it a lot. The central banking changed in 2008 for America. America used to go. And before that, they were in kind of uh, a situation, they were in in an environment that they called a corridor system where they where they tried to get the perfect amount of reserves and, and banking reserves in the system. And when they wanted to change rates, they immediately went and either added liquidity by, by buying T-bills or removed liquidity by selling T-bills in the open market. And that's how they did it. And so there was always kind of, we were always at the kind of the optimum point of, of re- amount of reserves in the system. Then in 2008, because we hit the zero bound, they could no longer do that. They had to introduce what they call a floor system. And so now all of a sudden they do interest on excess reserves. And eventually we have to do RRP reverse repost because of the, even that becomes a, a, not a good enough bound. But the, the whole way we do use the banking system has changed. And, the, and, and it's changed in a way that there's now way too many reserves still in the system. And I think that we haven't really thought about whether that might have also changed all the signals that we've seen throughout the years. Like, this is going to seem sacrilege to say, but this this idea that the yield curve always works in terms of a signal for a recession. First of all, it doesn't work throughout the world. It only works in the States. And, and next all up, it's it worked in an environment when we were in a corridor system as opposed to a floor system. And I'm wondering if the whole way that our bond market works and the pricing of that has changed and we don't understand that yet. Hey everyone, we're about to get back in the action, but before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high-frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stable coins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in mix. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG10 to get 10% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. There's so much there. Yeah, I mean, the yield curve inverted in two and we're close to two years after that we, we don't have a recession so the track record was perfect up until then but now it's it's looking like well you know where's the recession man you know the and and, and so 2019 the yield curve inverted in 2019 then we had the recession in 2020 but you could say a covid occurred that that that, that was an accident i mean yeah the, the fact that you bring that up that is a such i mean you're not going to hear people talk about the the move from 
from, from corridors to floors. And yeah, the, the Federal Reserve, the, the composition of, of base money was like, you know, $60 billion of non-interest paying reserves before 2008. And they changed it to, it's now trillions of dollars and it does pay reserves. So, I mean, the monetary system, the Federal Reserve really, really changed it. So you can't, I mean, you can't just say, oh, like looking back at previous patterns, I had never connected those two about maybe that's why the yield curve reversion isn't isn't working this time. And, you know, as you know, I'm saying for the audience, the Fed had to, had to inject reserves into the system. So the, the old way they used to control it is by altering the level of reserves, as, as you said, so that if there's, I guess, a greater, more reserves in the system, maybe reserves. Interest rates go down. Interest rates, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So I, oh, Jack, just to show you how old I am, I actually remember when they used to go and they wouldn't even tell you they changed interest rates. They would go out and there would be, I think it was 1145, but I'm not exactly positive, but they would go and do operations in the, in the money markets. And that's how you know that they, they had changed rates. So they would go, they would meet and then they wouldn't say anything. And then the next day you'd be sitting around and you'd be like, Oh God, they just, you know, bought T-bills or whatever. It looks like they changed interest rates and that's how they did it. And, and listen, I've gone in debates with economists about this. A lot of them tell me all of these things are are positive. This is all a much better way to to run it. That's way above my pay grade. I don't know if what the most optimum kind of way to run an economy is, nor do I really care. I just care about how this is affecting pricing of financial instruments. And I was just thinking about it the other day. I was thinking about we've we changed the way that we do central banking. And yet we're assuming all of the other, all the playbooks we've been using for the past 40, 50 years are going to stay the same. And I'm, and I don't even know the answer. All I'm saying is that I'm not sure that the playbook is the same and that maybe we're rewriting it a little bit here and that we'll find that there were differences now and that the yield curve doesn't matter as much. Yeah. Is that what you think? I mean, what, how, how are you? What's your what's your economic outlook going forward? With the caveat that you know the best economists in the world are wrong, like close to fifty percent of the time. Uh, yeah, well, I, I actually think that the best trader in the world is uh, Stanley Druckenmiller. He always says that he's wrong. Uh, he's right sixty percent of the time, and so it makes him wrong forty percent of the time. And I'm no Stanley Druckenmiller, so I know I'm going to be wrong at least forty times percent of the time. Much closer, probably to fifty. In terms of the economy, it is difficult because I do believe that the fiscal is really important. And I don't know if you could pull up this chart that I that I included, which was the uh, yeah. the manufacturing of. Yep. And I think it's really it, it's really people are kind of have to keep this in mind. This is the U.S. construction on manufacturing, and the amount of fiscal stimulus that is occurring because of that Inflation Reduction Act, which is kind of like jumbo shrimp. It's an oxymoron. Because in fact, it's anything but an Inflation Reduction Act because it's spending its fiscal stimulus. And not only that, it's it's actually onshoring stuff, which is all going to make more inflation. But let's not argue about the name of it. I think we're kind of need to understand how much of that is is already through the system, and I and I think it's very really really difficult to know that. And although I'm confident over the next decade that we're going to continue to have fiscal stimulus and that that we're going to be surpri- the surprises will be the government spend more, I'm not sure that whether that'll continue next year and, 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 and to decide if that's going to continue next year, you have to really think about the money that was spent and how quickly it gets out in the economy. 
And a lot of times you'll say, well, look, the, the federal government's got this big deficit, therefore it's already out in the economy. But the, one of the problems is that it goes to a state level. It goes, it sits there, and then they have to go approve the projects. And so there's a good chance that a lot of that money is still waiting to be spent. And so if, if I am going to be bullish, the reason I'm going to be bullish on the economy is because I expect that there's more money still out at the state level but it is difficult to say in terms of when I'm thinking about the markets though, Jack, I I've kind of been, I worry a little bit because one of the last kind of concerns I had as a, when I thought of when I put on my bear hat and I said, okay, what could derail the stock market? I thought to myself, well, one of the worries that I have is that as the fed continues to do QT, we're actually going to eventually go to the point where there's, we're going to bump up against a level of reserves that actually might withdraw liquidity from the system. And even though, you know, I've talked about QE and all these things and how I said, I don't think they affect the economy as much as, as I, as most people believe, I do believe that it affects the pricing of securities a lot. And so if we had a situation where total liquidity was withdrawn to the point where we bumped up against stuff where we had problems in the repo market or problems, you know, with other things, I could suspect that we would have financial problems in the stock market. So one of the worries that I had was that they were doing QT at a pretty big uh, clip. Their RRP, which is a reverse repo program was falling at a, you know, a, a stunning level. And if we had a situation where we bumped up against that kind of minimum amount of reserves in the system and they overshot it, we would actually have a financial accident. Well, surprise, surprise. Lori Logan from the Fed just came out and said, well, it looks like we're going to actually, you know, start talking about withdrawing or slowing down QT because we might be closer than we think. And to me, that's kind of stunning. One of the, one of the things that has been shocking is how quickly the Fed has become dovish. And this is just another example of how quickly the Fed has become dovish. And I, Jack, when I stopped and I thought about it, I go, well, there's one of my big worries just taken off the table. And one of the things about the stock market is the stock market is going to top on the absolute best news where there's no more things to worry about. Uh-huh. So, so I do worry. I, I don't know how to time it, but as all these kind of worries get kind of fixed, I'll be like, Oh gosh, you know, like there's nothing else to worry about. And that'll be the point you have to sell it, you know, when, and, and we're, I don't think we're there yet, but it does. It is interesting that all the things that we were worried about is slowly coming, you know, is being removed. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Fed being dovish, though, because I do believe that there is a political aspect of this. And I don't want to make it sound like this is the only reason they're doing all these things, because I don't believe that. I do believe that inflation's coming down. The table is being set for them to do all these things. But at the margin, I believe that the political situation is setting up to make the Fed err a little bit on the dovish side. And what do I mean by that? I mean the fact that Donald Trump is uh, a threat to the establishment. And listen, I don't, please, I'm not making any political, you know, judgment here. I, I am just trying to read the tea leaves about how they're falling in terms of how this affects markets. Like him or not, Donald Trump is a threat to the establishment. Remember he told, he, he told Powell he couldn't putt. You know, like the guy. On Twitter, yeah. Yeah, he couldn't putt. He's like, hates Powell. It's, it's. There is no doubt in my mind that the establishment does not like it, does not like Donald Trump and is scared of him. And so I think if you're sitting there and you're Jay Powell and you're sitting there and saying, okay, inflation's 3%, 
I can risk, you know, putting the economy into a recession to get inflation down below too good and hard. I can risk that. In doing that, if you look over history, I think it was been since 1924, every single president who has presided over a, a re-election campaign when their economy was in a recession has lost. Like there's nobody has won. So the question is, does Powell want to risk putting Donald Trump in office or at least being the deciding factor or, or one of the deciding factors in putting Powell, uh, Trump in office just to beat down inflation from three down to 2%. And I, and I don't believe he does. And I, and I don't, I don't think it's as conscious and it's, 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 it's it, it, like, I don't think he's sitting there going, I can't let him win. I can't let him win. I'm going to do everything I can to lower rates. I don't think it's like that, but I do believe that when he's assessing the pro, the, the risk reward, he's looking at it and he's going, you know what? The, the kind of the, the risk has gone up for very little reward. Yeah, that that's a good argument. I, I didn't think of that. You know, I believe Powell was or, or still is a you know a Republican. However, with all political ideology aside, just if you're a you know as people say a Bitcoin maxi, if you're a central bank independence maxi, where all you care about is central independence, bank, central bank independence, and basically politicians shouldn't be telling the central bank what to do. I mean, Donald Trump said on Twitter that the Powell shouldn't cut rates, and Joe Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, has said. Look, I mean, I believe in central bank independence. So at least publicly, I mean, President Joe Biden is, you know, way better on the issue of central bank independence, whereas Trump is, you know, kind of wants them to be merged. Although I don't know if, if they said it. So yeah. Another point is if you're Powell and you're thinking about when you're going to pivot, you can't pivot six months ahead of the re-election or the uh, election. Yeah. Sorry. You can't be doing that. It's going to appear political. That's why they've gone now. So everyone's been surprised at how hard they've pivoted, how how dovish they've become. My argument is that they had to do it. If they were going to do it, they had to do it now because they couldn't do it in six months' time, right? And anyways, so that's so that's how I feel about that. Now, my suspicion is that the like going back to this idea that the the bond market goes and gets ahead of the Fed too often. I I think that we're going to be surprised that they're not going to cut as much as the bond market expects. Like I don't I don't I think the 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 reality is that the the bond market is way ahead of the of Powell and that we're not going to get these cuts and, and we're going to be disappointed. Not only that, I think that inflation, even though it's 2% now, and I talked about that one year inflation swap coming down, I think that there's a lot to be setting. It's setting up to bounce again. And, and I think we're almost at the point of maximum disinflation and the next surprise is going to be a bounce back higher. Right. So just to, to square those two things that you said, which at this on, on one side, they may appear to not be on the same side. But so you think the, the market has gotten way ahead of the Fed, so the, the Fed will not be as dovish as the market thinks. However, because it's election year, that is the reason why the Fed, you know, turned dovish so quickly. That's right. But but the, the Fed doesn't actually need to be dovish because the market did it for them by four guns. Right? Go. Like, exactly. So, Kevin, we've got two more topics we've got to broach. Well, one of them is, is still on, on short term rates and it's interest rate volatility and what the market is actually pricing in. So I, like a lot of people, when I look at probabilities, I look go to the you know, CME, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, Fed funds, which is you know interest rate rates, Fed funds probability calculator, which I believe calculates something based on the futures price and assumes something like a uh, logarithmic equal weighted band probability around that, which I don't think is right. So for example, it can tell me something like 
the market is implying a 100% chance that the Fed does XYZ, which, you know, if it, if it truly is the case, you could get infinity to one odds that it, that it wouldn't happen or you know, <laughs> a million to one, to one odds. Yeah. And I, you know, I've reported this on Twitter and I think I was report, I was accurate that CME was reporting this, but I, I don't, I think CME was exactly right in this context. And I don't think, you know, advanced short-term interest rate traders who are using CME, I don't think they're using that tool. That's more for, you know, people right. like me. So you, you actually did the work on the options, the actual options pricing to show what is actually being priced. And just, just you talk about that, about you know, the odds of 7% versus the odds of 2% and how it's extremely skewed to the downside. Yeah. So Jack, when I made this chart, it took me all Sunday afternoon to go through my, my, my option pricing. And even then I was making some assumptions about the zero bound that weren't correct. So it's not a perfect chart, but it's good enough for <laughs> most folks. And so what I was interested in is the fact that if you take a volatility surface, you can see kind of where the market, how the market is expecting the forward distribution of returns to be. And I took the SOFR, which is the short-term interest rate kind of uh, uh, index. And I looked at the SOFR futures for September and December. And if you look at this, you'll see that the, the current rate for the three months so far is 532. And if you look at the September contract, it's trading at 428. And the December contract is 394. But then I, what I've done is I've created a bunch of buckets of different kind of expectations based upon the probability, based upon those implied volatilities. And you'll see that, for example, seven and higher, meaning like raises, almost no chance of it occurring. But as we spoke about earlier, the fact that two and under, the market thinks there's an 8.4% chance of it occurring before September, and there's a 16.2% chance of it occurring before uh, December. So the market assumes that that kind of tail is a lot higher, and that is ultimately why you have a situation where the kind of the future is trading at a price that has more cuts built in than really should be the case. And if you look, for example, the September contract, the most likely outcome is four and a half to five. That's like 19.9%. Yet right now we're trading at 4.28. And the reason for that is because you have to price in the possibility of that right tail of them going and actually rate, cutting rates down to below two. Yeah, in the, in the equity world, you know, if stocks at $100, the odds that it goes to $110 or to $90, often it is priced at a similar probability. If you know, sometimes the, the, the put that's going to go to $90 is a little bit, you know, more expensive because people want downside protection. But there's not in the world of interest rates, because it's all controlled by the Federal Reserve, the, the short term rates. I mean, the, the market, I think, accurately perceives that cuts are much, much, much more likely than hikes, but that can result in some, I mean, the this, this skew chart must look very lopsided, right? Well, it is now, but don't forget, it can it can vary. We, we had huge amounts of rate hikes when we had this last year. So for a little while, I remember the guys from the, stir, the stir, my stir buddies, short-term interest rate traders, they would go and they would be talking about how there was a huge buyer of puts in the market. And it was back, it was Euro dollars and then eventually turned into SFR, SOFR futures. And I'm convinced, like I look back and I think about that buyer and I'm convinced that was Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan. And I might be wrong, but to me, if you listen to him very early, he was like, nope, there's a way more of a possibility that this thing goes way higher than everyone expects. And there was just this constant bid. 
And it was, it was at first he cleaned everyone out of calls. I mean, sorry, puts on the Euro dollar futures that he could. And then when they wouldn't do them anymore, they would, he would do one by twos, meaning he would sell them one to buy two so that he would be able to buy more downside bend down lower. And it was just constant the whole way. And I, so it's not always the case where the skew is such that it's kind of expecting a big, huge cut. I think at that time it was actually the skew was the other way and -hmm. people were overpaying for the protection for the actual hikes. And so it'll be different. Stock market almost never trades that way. Like you find that almost always, especially in indexes, you'll see a situation where the puts always trade fatter than the calls because everyone knows that the stock market takes the escalator up and the elevator down. Interesting enough, though, Jack, if you look at right now, you have a situation where the difference between the out of the money call and the out of money put on IWM, the small caps is as low or as tight as it's ever been or in the last decade because everyone is is underweight that asset and wants upside bend in small caps. So you do get times when it gets a little more normal. So it sounds like you you like to be short rates now because you think the market's not going to be... What, what do you think about in terms of like putting on trades such as that? And what are some pitfalls that you think are wise to avoid? So for me, I'm kind of the position that I love best is long inflation break-evens. And inflation break-evens is, in essence, buying tips, which are a bond plus inflation, and then shorting the nominal bond. And by doing that, you get exposure purely to interest rates. So I am betting, or sorry, purely to inflation. So I am betting on what will inflation be and over the next little while, and also what will be the market's expectation about what future inflation will be. And so I brought a couple of charts that I thought were really interesting because I think that one of the big kind of of challenges facing investors during this whole cycle is that from 1982 to to 2020, stocks and bonds were negatively correlated, meaning that when stocks went down and there was a big sell-off, usually bonds went up. And you saw a situation where you could actually create a great portfolio doing this because you had a situation where they were negatively correlated. You could buy your stocks, your risky asset. You could buy extra bonds, lever them up. You had a situation where interest rates were falling, so you were earning money there. And not only that, in a time of crisis, you would actually have the bonds being kind of the ballast to your portfolio. And one of the things that I've been talking about for a while is that I think in, that was in a disinflationary world of lowering interest rates. If we have the opposite, an inflationary world of, of higher kind of interest rates, I think that the, that bond market might actually, instead of being a ballast to your portfolio, might be the anchor that drags you down. And so the first chart I have is the stock market versus the, yeah, the total return of the U.S. Treasury index. And you'll see that 2022 they both went down together. And that was like, what, the worst year for the 60-40 that had ever been? Or it was really bad. And that was the real problem was that they were going together. And just as an aside, one of the things that I worry about with this rally in the stock market right now is that it was completely and utterly driven by the, by the rally in the bond market. We're still joined at the hip. Like, it, like the, the, that correlation is still very positive, right? Fed pivoted, bond market got a bid, Stock market went with it, okay? Now, let's go to the next chart, which is inflation break-evens. You'll see that inflation break-evens have actually performed the whole time, even as the bond market was going down. 
And Louis, my buddy Louis, Louis Gav talks about yeah. the anti-fragile asset. He's always trying to find this anti-fragile asset. And what that means is like bonds were the anti-fragile asset that you used to want to own for your st- in your portfolio. You know, you buy the bonds, you buy stocks. And as I said, when things got bad for stocks, you actually still did well with your bonds. Okay. Now, that didn't work in 2021 and 2022, but yet inflation break-evens sure did great. And this was, in, in essence, a long inflation trade. Now, many people will say, well, that's no problem. I'll just buy inflation trades like, like commodity stocks. And there was a whole, whole host of different ETFs created trying to take advantage of the inflation trades. Well, those all kind of fizzled out as inflation has fallen back down. Yet, when you go look at the inflation break-evens, the, that strategy is still sitting almost at the highs. So it protected you in the period when we had higher inflation and the bond market was doing bad. And yet it also was, you know, continued to chug along. So when I think about constructing a portfolio, I think that marrying kind of your risky assets of the stock market with inflation break-evens is really, really interesting. And I think it's kind of the, it's going to be something going forward that people are going to be doing a lot more of. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the best hedge in 2022, I mean, one of the best hedges was oil. And okay, you want to be long oil, but oil is, you know, and a commodity is so frequently in contango. So you're paying that that roll yield, you know, as I talked, as Hari Krishnan talked, talked, talked a lot about in uh, our interview. And then, you know, you, you invest in commodity companies and some commodity companies are really good, but other companies, yeah. you know, they'll go on a TV channel and say, you know, we're going to be capital disciplined and then they just drill like crazy. So it's, you know, I mean, you know, Canada, you're Canadians, I don't know you. <laughs> um, but uh, so what is, so I understand a 10 year nominal treasury, you're being paid the, the the yield. And then if the yield goes up, you lose a little depreciation. If it goes down, you get the uh, capital appreciation. In terms of this yellow line, the 10 year break even total. So are you only, your exposure is not to nominal interest rates. It's only to the break even. So are you being paid the break even and you make money if it, the break even goes down? How does so, that work? So it's too kind of, you've, you've got it absolutely right in terms of the nominal bond, like a regular bond. If you think about what affects it, you earn the current yield on a day, on a year to year basis. Like let's say you buy a, a 5% bond and let's just, nothing happens with interest rates. You're going to earn that 5%, right? You're going to earn that. But don't forget then you have a nine-year bond. If it's a 10-year bond and then a year later you have a nine-year bond, but if interest rates have gone from five to six, you'll have a capital loss on that repricing of that nine-year bond. And so the question is, does the current yield of the bond make up for it if, if rates go higher? Or you might have a, the opposite situation where interest rates actually go down. So you not only do you earn the five, but you also earn a capital appreciation when the bond goes, the nine-year goes from down to 4%. Now, in terms of inflation break-evens, you are earning inflation, okay? Now, you have to remember, you're buying inflation. Let's say you pay 2% for a 10-year inflation break-even. So you're going to earn any amount of inflation over 10%. So let's just say that we have another great year in terms of inflation where it goes to 10% again. You're going to earn 8% on that portion of it. But... You're also subjected to the next kind of nine years of what the market expects inflation to be. So if you bought that for two and then the market said, oh, you know what, actually, even though we're having 10% inflation today, it's going down to one, you're going to lose because that break even is lost. But if you have a situation where the market reprices inflation even higher, 
which is what I think is going to happen, then you will not only gain with inflation being higher than the break-even that you're long, but you're also going to gain by the market's expectation of forward inflation rising. Mm-hmm. And and can I can I expand on that a little bit more? Please, please. Yeah. So if you think about two, when Volcker broke the back of inflation, he came in there and he was like, "I'm going to raise rates and we're going to crush this." And even when inflation came back down, which it came back pretty quick, people kind of always they remember the the twelve and the fifteens, but they don't realize kind of within a couple of years it was three or something like that. Bond market refused to think that it was that that was a permanent kind of inflation rate and they demanded a higher real rate. So even though inflation was running three or 4%, they said, no, 10 years, like over the next 10 years, inflation is going to be five, eight, 10%. That's why we're going to expect 10% inflation. So the real rate that you could earn, meaning the amount over inflation stayed high and it took a decade for that in real rate to lower. And that was because of everyone's recency bias of remembering the pain of inflation. I think we're going to have just the opposite in terms of disinflation. I think that, and and we talked about why the bond market is overly quick to expect the Fed to lower rates. And I think you could also argue that the bond market is overly quick to expect inflation to come down. It's because everyone remembers that. Nobody like a lie like that's in the markets today was around or very few were around trading in the 80s or the 70s when inflation was higher. So there is kind of a recency bias to assume that inflation will be lower. So therefore, over time and over the next decade, I suspect that the bond market will continually underestimate forward inflation and therefore Instead of earning, like in 1982, a higher real yield, I think you're going to earn a lower real yield. It could even be negative because we continually be surprised by inflation being higher than everyone expects. Oh, so the way that you get paid is because you get paid, you get paid not because the break-evens go down, but because realized inflation just goes into your account. Right. And it's just, yeah. And I think that that's, and part of the things is you need to remember is that you're actually short the bond market when you're long on inflation break even. You're long tips and you're short a nominal. So, well, like another way of thinking about it, Jack, is like if you have a 2% break even, inflation break even, and you're thinking about whether I should invest in a tip or whether I should invest in a nominal. If inflation ends up being 3% on average for the next 10 years, then you would have been better off owning the 10%, the tip, because you're going to earn, you know, a, a hundred basis points more than the, than the, than the nominal one, because you're, it, it was pricing in a 2% difference. And yet you actually earned a 3% difference. So it's the market's expectations about forward expected inflation. And I think that is continually too low. And so I suspect that in the coming years and decades, there's going to be a repricing and a more of an appreciation of the fact that we are going to have continual inflation. Mm, Very interesting. 
I, I want to talk to you about the buy rate thing, but uh, we got to talk while we're, while we're in the weeds on interest rate plumbing, why you like Harley Bassman's new TF and why you think your equity vol is cheap, but interest rate vol is expensive. You know, I, I, but I don't want to be too greedy with your time. So let's make it kind of a lightning round. <laughs> okay. A so, lightning round. I yeah. So it. because, so, so you think interest rate volatility is, is, is priced very high. Basically the market thinks, oh, the Fed could cut to one and a half basis points, you know, 500 basis points of cuts. Therefore, let's see. Mortgage-backed securities that have low coupons are actually don't have as much exposure, aren't as short volatility as more recent ones. So Harley, be, because their more recent ones will will prepay a ton if interest rates go to two percent, whereas if it has a coupon of three, you know the prepayment's gonna go. So that's why you like Harley Bassett's new ETF, which targets high higher coupon mortgage-backed securities. Right. So I, I was listening to you sp- speak with Hari uh, Krishnan the other day, and he was saying, I don't understand why the higher interest rate vol hasn't moved into the stock market vol. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, there's a lot of, like, I don't really understand why either, but it doesn't really matter to me. I just look at it and I say, one of the things I want to do is I want to be selling interest rate vol, which is really expensive. It's really high. And I want to be buying stock market vol which is low on a regulative basis and one of the ways to do this trade is to do what i call my bose harley spread and it's because bose from uh, saba capital he talked about this and he was doing it and i thought it was a really interesting trade because one of the things is that if you look at mbs's and you are correct that you talked about mortgage-backed securities you are correct that that you need an mbs with that has a current coupon meaning that it was recently issued and it, the problems when you go look at indexes is that there's all sorts of older issues that have 2% and 1% coupons or way, way down. So you need the new ones. So you go look at Harley Bassman. He's made a new product that is just these new ones. It's called MT. And what that is, is it's a mortgage-backed security. And inherent in there is a short volatility trade. So, okay, you're just, you're shorting volatility when you buy MBSs. And that's just, you don't really even know, know why. One of the things that I thought was interesting was you could actually marry this with a short credit trade, which is what Bose uh, mentioned, because usually what you have is when MBS spreads widen, it's because in volatility has risen. And usually what they, happens is credit moves with it. You get a situation where the interest rate volatility moves up and also credit spreads widen. And this is one of the few times when credit spreads has not widened and they've actually cheapened. And you have a situation where relative of the MBS spread versus the credit spread, it is as cheap as it's ever been. So the way I did it is I went and actually married the MTB with an IBI, which is a credit instrument that actually has the proper duration. So you can just do it one for one. And Bob's your uncle. You can put this trade on and be just like those two legends of uh, fixed income. There we go. All right. Uh, great explanation and great job doing a lightning round. Now let's move on to buy rights. You you sent me this email. You said you, you had a, a lot of views on them about how this product is is going out to more retail investors and how you don't have you know necessarily the most favorable view of this strategy. And I'm just really glad because I don't think we've ever discussed buy rights on this program. So, you know, we've done 300 plus episodes and this is the first time. So what is buy rights? Tell us about the growth of the product and, and what are your thoughts on it? Okay, so it's, uh, it's a terrible product. <laughs> Use the right word, but let me tell you why. First of all, let me explain what it is. You go out, you buy this, you buy an ETF and the ETF is in essence long. And the most popular one is the QQQs. They go buy the QQQs. And then every month 
they systematically sell an at-the-money call, okay? So they buy the QQQs and they sell the call. So you're buying and then writing a call. When you think about it, it seems to make sense, right? Like you go, you earn that income, you're going to be taking advantage of the volatility. It's, it's, it's a great way of just, you know, getting paid every day, every month and, and just kind of earning some money. If you stop and think about like put call parity and think about what you're really doing, you're in essence selling a put every month. That is what you're doing. You're selling an at the money put and just rolling it over and over and over again. Now, let me explain to you why it's bad. But before we do that, let's go with the first chart, which just shows the outstanding and just kind of get a feel for how big this product has become. Is this, is this the, no, the, the other one with the, the growth? There we go. So yeah. you see this thing in 2018, 2019, there's almost no shares. There's 10 million shares of this QYLD. It wasn't really that big a product. 2021 comes and this thing goes through the moon. Like it goes from 50 million shares to 4 million shares. And that's, you know, what, $8 billion or something. It's a monster number. And there's a whole host of them. This is by no means the only one. It's just one of the more popular ones. And I've, and I've decided to look at so now let's go to the next chart, which shows the, I believe it's going to show the, there this we go. One or no? Yeah, that's good. So let's just talk about this. Let's go look at the returns. And, and the thing about this QILD, although it's, it's only been around since 2018, it's actually an index that's been around for a long time because it's based upon the, I came remember what's called the CBOE NASDAQ 100 buy right version two index. Okay. So we can go and look at it and we can compare owning the, that strategy versus owning the QQQs. So the QQQs are the, the orange line and that other strategy is the blue line. And what you'll realize, or you'll have a look at, you'll see that the annualized return over that period for the buy rate is 5.73. The NASDAQ's obviously much higher, 15.17. And then we'll look at the volatility of the two. So the, the buy rate does have a lower volatility as you would expect. Uh, it has 16 basically percent volatility and the NASDAQ is 22. Now, the thing about it is when you think about those numbers and what they mean, that means that the sharp ratio for the buy rate is 0.27 and the NASDAQ is 0.86. And if we go to this next chart, you'll see that when it really matters and you get a drawdown, the two indexes aren't that much different, meaning that you'll still, because you're going and you're still long, you're still exposed to 100% of the drawdown after you earn that amount of the call of the call that you've sold. So the NASDAQ is orange. The blue is the, the, the buy right. And so it's kind of like you, it's, you know, that old joke about head side wind tails you lose. It, it's a little bit like that in that you're going to make, when the market goes ripping to the upside, you're going to have been stopped out. You're going to have basically the call is going to get exercised and you're not going to participate past the amount of the call. And then when the market goes down, you get almost all the downside, right? You, there is less of it. So you'd actually be better off buying half as much or whatever the number is of the NASDAQ and living with more volatility and not exposing yourself to this. And one of the things that you might say is, okay, well, Kev, that doesn't really matter. I'm not dumb enough to buy this thing. So I'm not going to, I don't care. But the thing about it, Jack, is that as it's gotten bigger, effect on the market has become huge and really? yeah because like if you think about it it's eight billion dollars of calls that needs to be sold every day every every month i'm sorry and the th interesting thing about it is they don't roll it in in, in a 
very logical fashion. What they do yeah. is they actually cover it the day before expiry. Okay. So if it's in the money, they buy it all back over a two hour VWAP period, and then they sell it the next day over a two hour VWAP period. So the options, their options, their short call exposure, not the duration, but the, you know, how long it expires can be anywhere between, I guess, well, you know, 21 trading days to zero days. Well, no, because it's always a one month. So it always, they always roll like a full month. So every kind of third Friday, they roll the full month. So if that option finishes in the money, then they buy it all back. And mm -hmm. so that day they're buying it. Let's just assume that the, let's assume the stock market's gone up over the, that month. Okay. Now all of a sudden they're, they're short an option that is that they're buying back. That's in the money. So they're buying $8 billion of deltas over that two hour VWAP period. Okay. And then the next day they sell it and they sell one. Now let's assume that's a 50 Delta. So then the next day they sell $4 billion of Delta over that two hour period, but the market all knows this is coming. So there's all sorts of professional, you know, sharks out there just taking advantage of that. And so even if you don't care about this product and go, I would never buy that. I don't, I have no interest in just kind of systematically selling puts at the money puts. You still should be aware of it because it is moving the market. And, and Jack, just before I go any further, I actually like, I'm not one of these guys who says you should never sell puts or sell mm -hmm. volatility. I just think that selling it in this fashion isn't very smart. Like we talked about the skew, everyone in the kind of usually in an index they like to go buy out of the money puts and the way they pay for them is by selling at the money or out of the money calls. And so you have a very distinct skew and to go and do this on a systematic basis just seems like the wrong kind of trade. Like there's, there's no edge. And not only that you're so large at this point, it's $8 billion and everyone knows you're what you're doing. And it just seems to me that there's much better ways to sell volatility than to do this. Yeah, but I'm being short NASDAQ calls doesn't sound like something that's that appetizing, even yeah. if you own the underlying NASDAQ. I mean, last yeah. year, you, you, you know, probably, I don't know what that, that ETF did, but it definitely wasn't the 50% that the NASDAQ did. Yeah, well, and then the other thing is, even if you got a situation where it declined, you then end up selling calls, like let's, let's take the crash, like the COVID crash, you end up rolling the calls and, and stopping yourself out from the big gain. So it's just, it's just from a risk reward basis. There's just, there's such better strategies out there than that. And like, if you're going to sell vol, this isn't the way to do it. It's tempting. It looks good. Obviously, well, you know, I must be an idiot because every, it's one of the most popular products out there yet. It, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Instead of complaining about it, you should just be aware of it. Take advantage of it. Yeah. Know the flows, go look into it the day before the expiry. They, they have to buy it back. The day of expiry, they roll it into the next into the next month, and it's just kind of there's one on the S and P, there's one on the the Russell, there's one on the Q, and they're just becoming more popular. So you know why fight it? Just you know trade it. Interesting, and yeah, I guess, I guess there are some strategies that are worse, like you know buying and holding a VIX futures ETF and just holding that, which I think you know, some retail investors do because they don't know that you're not supposed to do that. But uh, yeah, that's it's a little tough. So th thank you for informing our audience on that. No problem. My pleasure.
Yeah, well, Kevin, thanks so much for, for coming back. We'll make it a January tradition. Okay. Tell, tell, tell people quickly about the, your, your newsletter, the, the Macro Tourist, what you, what you talk about and where people can find it. Sure. So I, I, I like to laugh and say that I talk about absolutely everything. That's when I named the letter. Everyone was said, you know, the macro tourist, that's kind of a derogatory, you know, uh, uh, name. And I said, oh, yeah, no, I know. I, I get it. I just I like to talk about a lot of different things. So there's it, it will range from different ETFs, different strategies, bond market strategies, anything and everything. You can find it at the macro And listen, if you want to check out my writing, just send me an email, Kevin at the macro tourist.com. And I'm gonna be more than happy to send you off some of my recent examples. Yeah, it, it is a really great work. And I like the macro tours. It's I, very humble, which I think is important, both in, in life, but especially in the investment business and the, the trading business. I mean, I think there are a lot of people, Kevin, who do not think of themselves as macro tourists. They think of themselves as very advanced macro <laughs> thinkers who don't know how to make that chart you did of of the what the market is pricing in using option pricing. Well, it took and, me I mean, a long it took me a long time, Jack. And to be honest, I had I had always thought I'd known kind of this rough calculation that they say delta approximates the uh, the chance of a option finishing in the money. And then when I started looking into it, I was like, oh, no, that actually doesn't work as volatility increases and time increases. So I had to go look at all the different formulas and I had to learn my you know, option calculator. So it took me an embarrassingly long amount of time to figure it out. But I, it, was, it was time well spent because it was a lot of fun. I'm sure it is. Kevin, thanks again for, for coming on and thanks everyone for watching. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for watching. Make sure to show some love to today's sponsor, Public, by going to public.com slash forwardguidance. Again, that link is public.com slash forwardguidance. Also, Forward Guidance is available not just on YouTube, but on Twitter and on all podcast apps, including Spotify, where a video version of the show is also available. Thanks again for watching. Until next time.